2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Wow. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 274. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What? What, what a show, man. First up, we have a bit of short fiction by Lewis Shiner. Then we have Mr. J.J. Campanella coming in with his science news for January. Then the main fiction is In the Moment by Jerry Olson. So that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around before that. Let me just tell you about that Spider-Robinson. How to write science fiction with Spider-Robinson. As you know, because I was bleating on about it for months, but it was on last Saturday, just gone, and man, oh man, I just wish, you know what I mean, if everyone could have been there and just listened to it, you know what I mean, it would have been fantastic. Yeah, He talked for five hours, five hours, you know what I mean, (laughs) yeah. Well, I know when I first, you know, like approached Spider and said, "Spider, would you fancy doing this?" and he's like straight away, he's emailed back within like half an hour. Tony, what can I? T- I kinda I of talk. I kinda tell him anything about writing. I don't even know how to write myself. Do you know? What I mean? And I said, "Spider, it's it's not just about writing. It's about life and... Gen- well, he says. Well, and honestly, I'm not joking. It took a bit to kind of get Spider in. The, you know, it just wasn't happy. You kind of doing it. And I said, but it's not, you know, it's not like a lesson. You're not teaching people. It's just like your science fiction, your life, you know, kind of. And, it, you know, we eventually got kind of through it, you know, all the kind of little practice sessions. Like I said, and he sang the Beatles. And when he, he did that, I was just thinking, this is going to be something special, I'm sure. Well, honestly, we had, you know, we kicked off at 8 o'clock last on on the Saturday night. And normally it's it's. Round about 4pm on a Saturday when I do these things, just because I can get the family out, you know what I mean, and it's nice and quiet, bandwidth's pretty kind of decent round that time, not everyone's jumping on, but Spider says, he says, it's just not going to happen, doesn't matter all the kind of he says, I just don't get up, I don't function till round about 11 o'clock, and I think he's Pacific kind of time. So it was this. This was a kind of one-off. I says, oh, i speak to the, I speak to the wife. <laughs> I'll have a chat with the wife. See if I can put it at eight o'clock my time, UK time, and uh, you know, it's a it's a bit later for Spider. And you know, eventually we, we got that done, and you know, I, I cleared it with the boss. You know what I mean? And they went to see Life of Pi at the cinema. So it was all kind of set, and it was actually quite a nice time because it was more relaxed for me. For some you know what I mean? I could have like a little. As it, just get this little bottle. You can... Oh, there we go. and just get me whiskey out, you know, and have a little nip while I was chatting while going on. And like I say, we, we kicked off at eight o'clock. And Spider stopped talking at one o'clock in the morning. And it was just like so in-depth, so like intense almost, you know what I mean? It was just it was just revealing everything. Like I say, about writing, but about his personal life, you know, about Him and Jeannie, you know, and it was just from the 60s, you know, getting busted back in the 60s, everything like that. And even, you know, I said he was going to play a couple of songs, he even played. And this is what just choked me up. You know what I mean? It was just unreal. He said he wrote this song for Jeannie and he was going to play it as a last song, you know, when, when she was dying. This was the one, you know, and he was quite open about talking about Jeannie. And he was just about to play, and he'd been playing a couple of others, you know, strumming along. And this was his song they gave it to her to say goodbye. And she died, before, you know, just as he was about to play it. And it just, do you know what I mean, it just, oh, it was just staggering, to be quite honest. Like I say, there was fun and everything in spite of such a funny guy. You know, it wasn't just all kind of... You know, talking about genie and like heaviness and everything like that. But it was like, say, talking about the 60s, talking about, you know, picking up a guitar and, and, and oh, just fantastic. So and like I say, five hours because we had, like I say, a part one to part two. And we got a part one where we, we each have, we all have like a little five minute break, you know, and I stopped recordings and everything like give us a people to stretch your legs, get a cup of tea. And that was kind of kicked in, the part one kicked in about 45 minutes, which was, you know, on time, going good. Then Spider sat down again and that was it. He was just on a roll. And like you say, it was, when I went to bed, you know what I mean? It was just like, I must've been about half one or something. And it's funny because I'd, the night before I'd been doing night shifts and I had to, you know, jump into bed straight away, but I had to be up for 10 o'clock to Take my son diving because he's doing he's he's learning diving. So I had three hours sleep, and that was it. And then you see, I just when I went to bed, I just woo, oh, it was just fast asleep. And my good wife let us have a nice lie in there. So but honestly, do you know what I mean? It was just spectacular. And I'm not just saying this because, like you say, eventually it's gonna be in the shop so you can kind of download it. But if there's a chance you wanted to listen, you know, you get five hours of Spider talking about his life, do you know what I mean? It's just, oh, God, it's one of them moments for me, to be quite honest, do you know what I mean? Ray Bradbury and Spider Robinson, you're just brilliant. Anyway, let us kick off with today's show. First up is short story by Lewis Shiner, Canto MCML. Shiner began his career as a science fiction writer moved into the cyberpunk and then into mainstream novels, frequently with magic, magical realism and fantasy elements. Apparently he's written eight novels and also edited a collection for writers and comics. In 2007, he created Fiction Liberation Front as a venue for all his work to be downloaded for free under Creative Commons. And I've been over there and it's just like you say, if you want any of Lucy's work, you know what I mean? Yes, you, you need to look after the man dropping some donations, but he's quite happy to give it away, which I think is a, you know, a staggering feat. Well done, sir. This story is narrated by Veronica Jagger. Veronica has done you know a couple of... Bless her she's been now. We're getting her all over the District of Wonders, but what a narrator Veronica is. You know what I mean? It's just brilliant. If everyone, anyone remembers, and I've said it a couple of times every time we play, you know, a, a narration by Veronica, when she did the Return to Earth by Ryan Jones. Whoa, oh, that just put the shivers up the back of my neck. And actually, Ryan's been in touch a couple of times. He's trying to get into some writing course there, and he needed kind of a bit of a kind of uh, some kind of recommendation from yourself. And I was more than happy. Do you know what I mean? What a cracking story that was. And like I say, Veronica just brought that to life. And we like you say we jumped on, and you know, captured Veronica. And now you can hear Veronica all over. District of Wonders, what a... I'll just give you a little bio, just in case you you don't know about Veronica Wood. Just staggering. She is a voiceover artist and author. She is the co-author, voice talent and producer of the Secret World Chronicle podcast. She writes and world builds for comic publishers Incubator Press. And she's also an active voice in the HG World in The Diary of Jill Woodbine. And she continues to read for authors of realism, science fiction, fantasy, romance, and horror. There you go. Listen, honestly, I'll put a link on the Veronica site. Brilliant narrator. Veronica, thank you so much. So, the Starship Soba is very proud present.
3: Canto MCML by Lewis Shiner. Jack dropped his briefcase on the rich green lawn when he saw Billy pedaling toward him. Billy grinned and reached into his saddlebag for the Evening Times Herald, held in a loose roll by a red rubber band. He tossed it end over end, and Jack snagged it left-handed. "'Nice catch, Mr. Evans,' Billy said, already reaching for the next paper. Jack waved, then surreptitiously brought the paper up to his nose for a quick whiff of newsprint and ink. He was careful not to let the screen door bang as he set the briefcase next to the coat rack and crossed the high-ceilinged living room to the gleaming white-tiled kitchen. He took a can of Schlitz out of the fridge and opened it with two quick stabs of the church key, big hole first, vent hole second, then upended it and drank it straight down. He'd opened the cabinet under the sink to throw it away when Beth walked in. She wore a white lace apron over a polka-dot summer dress. She was trembling. You're home, she said. Is something wrong? She held out a piece of fool's cap with block printing on it. The paper rattled from the shaking of her hand. Jack turned the paper the right way around and read, This is not 1950. He handed it back. Surely this is not a surprise to you. I know what fucking year it is. Her whisper wanted to be a scream. Where did this come from? It was in the mailbox with the mail. Maybe it's some new ad campaign. It's not an ad. I don't see why you're reacting so. We paid for this. We earned it. Well, one of us did, Jack said quietly. I will not have somebody make a mockery of everything we fought so hard to get. You don't know that. It's a mockery. You don't know what it is. Throw it away and forget about it. He stared at her until she gave in, slowly crumpling the page, then squeezing it into a tight little ball. He took it from her and tossed it in the bin after the Schlitz can. Now, he said, is that pot roast I smell? And I could use another beer. The next day, there was another. "'Dónde están los negros?' it read. Beth was livid. "'I sat by the picture window today from the time you left for work until Lewis came with the mail. As soon as he closed the box, I ran out and found this. I chased Lewis down, and he said it was already there when he put the mail in. There was one in every box on the block.' I made him wait and got a plastic bag and took the one out of Ted and Sue's mailbox that nobody had touched yet. Then I called the police. The police? Mailboxes are federal property. It's against the law to use them for private purposes. Federal property? Who are you kidding? If you're waiting on the FBI, you're going to be. A crime is a crime. Of course, the police didn't care much more than you do. I got them to test it for fingerprints, but there weren't any. Beth, do you know what makes me furious? It's not like there aren't any African Americans here. Negroes, you mean? She was in no mood for sarcasm. There's the McLeans and... And? There's the McLeans. That makes the point. Jack looked at the note again. "'The E's were quite distinctive, the middle bar barely above the lower one. "'Not that he needed the evidence. "'Whoever it is, he has to be doing it during the night,' Beth said. "'I'll stay up all night and—' "'No,' he said. "'I'll take care of it.' "'Her eyes started to ask a question, then glanced away. "'All right,' he said. "'She was still looking at the floor.' All right. Okay, she said. After Beth went up to bed, he dialed a five-digit number on the downstairs phone. His heart beat in pure Pavlovian response to the digits. A woman's voice said, Hello? What the hell do you think you're doing? Jack, my, how long has it been? Six months? "'We have to talk. Now. Not on the phone. Bob's home. I'll meet you in the usual spot. Half an hour.' He looked at his watch. "'Don't keep me waiting.' "'Darling. I wouldn't dream of it.' As he got to the moonlit playground, she waved from the top of the slide and then slid down the length of it, arms in the air like a child.' "'She wore men's clothes, dungarees with the cuffs rolled up, and a white sweatshirt. "'Not Bob's clothes, of course. They would have swallowed her. "'These seemed to exaggerate the curves of her figure more than hide them. "'She ran across the perfect white sand and made as if to kiss him. "'He held her at arm's length and said, "'I'm not getting around. "'It's too bad. Hardly a surprise, but still a shame.' What are you trying to accomplish with those stupid notes? She laughed. What do you think? Stir up the pot, shake the tree, upset the apple cart. Keep from going out of my ever-loving mind. She dropped into one of the swings and pushed herself back and forth. Beth called the cops. If you get caught, they'll expel you. For a little harmless fun? These people don't have any sense of humor. Look who's talking. Marge, listen to me. This has to stop. If you pull another stunt like this, anything like this, I will turn you in myself. She stopped the swing, and her voice went husky and soft. You hate them as much as I do. Smug, privileged sociopaths, you called them. Come on, Jack, admit it. Not everything you've told me was a lie. Stung, he took a step backward. I've said what I have to say. Jack. She waited until he looked at her again. Jack, as long as you're making threats, if you turn me in, I'll tell Beth about you and me. She knows, he said. Oh, shit, Jack, what did you go and tell her for? It's over, Marge. It's been over for a long time. As he started to walk away, she said, "'How can you stand it? How can you just close your eyes to it?' Jack turned on her. "'Because there's no fucking choice. You want to live in the red zone? How long do you think you'd last? They'd be fighting each other just to take the first turn with you. I closed my eyes to the way it is here the same way I closed my eyes to what I did to make the money that got me here.' "'the same way you closed your eyes and Bob did "'and everybody else here did.' "'He waved one arm at the impossibly clear night sky. "'You think this is going to last forever? "'We're only buying time. "'But I have paid for that time, "'paid a couple of fortunes for it, "'and I'm not going to just piss it away.' "'She was crying as he let himself out "'through the low wooden gate. "'He walked fast, hands in his pockets.' The sweet, cool night breeze kept him from breaking a sweat. Upstairs, he changed into his pajamas. The open window let in the sound of crickets and tree frogs. Beth rolled onto her back as he got into bed. Did you fix it? she asked sleepily. Yes, he said. She curled into her pillow, and a moment later she said, I love you, Jack. I love you too, he said. He lay there for a long time, eyes wide open, staring into the night.
1: There you go. Copyright, I guess, is Lewis's, but like you see, you can go over there and download that story. And a big, big thank you to Lewis and Veronica. Thank you so much. Next up is the very man himself,
4: Mr. G.G. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and reinventions, my fine listeners, and welcome to this January 2013 science news update. I'm your host for this first science podcast of this freshly minted annuum, Jim Campanella. Welcome to my monthly bit of insanity. Let's go right to the heart of the stories. Listener Paul Hauser wrote in to me with the following question. Dear Jim, I have a physics question about gravity on planets with more mass than Earth. Astronauts simulate zero-g in water. I assume that buoyancy is responsible. How would that work on a 2G planet? Would I sink or float? Thanks. As I told Paul in my email response, I'm not a physicist, but this is what I believe is the best answer to the question. Buoyancy in liquid has to do with the relative density of the liquid and what you have floating in it. It doesn't really have anything to do with gravity. Density would not change as gravity goes up two or threefold. Matter that can flow is called a fluid. Now, fluid does not mean the same thing as liquid. Liquids and gases are both fluids. Under the right conditions... Solid matter that's made of small particles can also flow. The ground shaking during an earthquake, in fact, can turn soil into a fluid. And when that happens, cars and other solid objects can actually sink into the ground, which you've probably seen on a few really bad movies. A scuba diver uses a buoyancy control device, a BCD, to sink or float in water. To sink, a scuba diver releases air from the BCD, to decrease their volume. This reduces their buoyant force and makes them more dense. To rise to the water's surface, they have to become less dense by increasing their buoyant force. So they increase their volume by filling the BCD with air from the scuba tank. They can stay in one place underwater if they have neutral buoyancy. That means that they have the same density as the water around them. A diver can be neutrally buoyant by controlling the amount of air in their BCD, just like a training astronaut can. I don't believe that that relationship would change as gravity goes up, because it doesn't really have anything to do with gravity. It, again, has to do with the relationship between the density of the liquid and the density of the body in the liquid. If I'm wrong on that, I'll be happy to hear the email corrections by any physicist who is out there. Okay, here's the first actual story of the night, then. I came by it in a rather confusing way. I first found the article myself early in the January issue of the journal Science. And I read the work by Dr. Ulrich Schneider at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. And I think I did not entirely understand it because I got a particular conclusion from it that apparently other people did not. The reason I say I didn't entirely understand it is because, listener... Mark Zanfardino wrote to me to recommend what I thought was an entirely different paper with a different goal and conclusion, which, well, it actually turned out to be the very same paper after I went back and read the link that he emailed to me. If I had understood my first reading of the paper, I would have immediately known that they were one and the same. And interestingly enough, the paper was then immediately recommended to me by three other listeners, C.J. Urso, Mike Bernecki, and Michelle Demi. And I thank all three of you for your recommendations as well. Apparently, this is a very popular paper. Anyway, why am I so confused about what paper I was reading and what exactly is it about? Well, from what I can tell, Dr. Schneider's work really entailed two major breakthroughs. I really only recognized one when I first read it, which led to my misunderstanding. So let me explain. The paper has to do with temperature and our understanding of what temperature really is and what it means. We recognize everyday temperatures as those which we deal with as the most important molecule around us changes. Water. Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, and it freezes at 0 degrees Celsius. And in some sense, that defines our environment. A negative temperature on the Celsius scale just means a temperature below where water freezes. For example, my laboratory freezer is at about minus 20 degrees Celsius. A really cold laboratory freezer, where we would store things like tissues, RNA samples, protein samples for long-term storage, would be minus 80 degrees Celsius or less. At that temperature, most biochemical activity has pretty much completely ceased. There are other scales of temperature measurement that are used by physicists, and they do not base their scale on biological activity or the state of water. The chief one of interest here is the Kelvin scale. Zero on the Kelvin scale is absolute zero. That is minus 273 degrees Celsius. That is the temperature at which atoms have completely ceased their movement. And that is an important definition of temperature because up until this point, temperature has always been defined as a measure of molecular movement. The greater the movement, the higher the temperature. Each of the molecules buzzing around in a pot of boiling water, for example, has more energy on average than a sluggish water molecule in an ice cube. Mark and the others wrote to me about this story because we have previously discussed absolute zero and the heat death of the universe, and everybody seemed to think this was related to that. The important point that Mark made about the Schneider article is that Schneider's research group is the first group ever to get a negative Kelvin temperature. A negative Kelvin temperature was thought to be impossible because it is a lower temp than absolute zero. So how do you get a negative temperature when the molecules have already stopped moving? Dr. Schneider set out to do something unusual. He wanted to get the particles within a substance to be confined to a very high level of energy. In other words, instead of having the particles start at a minimum energy corresponding to absolute zero, And spreading out toward higher energies, he wanted to start at a maximum energy and spread toward lower energies. By definition, a substance under those conditions would have a negative Kelvin temperature. His team achieved that with potassium atoms chilled to a few billionths Kelvin above absolute zero. Through the use of lasers and magnets, he managed to get the atoms to jump to a high energy state. By creating a cluster of particles exclusively at high energies, Schneider and his colleagues had a gas at a few billionths negative Kelvin. The temperature is technically not below absolute zero, because negative on the Kelvin scale, unlike that on Fahrenheit or Celsius, is a complete construct that simply indicates something about the energy state of the particles involved. And that was the point that Mark wanted me to get out of the article. Negative temperature... Weird quantum effect, weird energy state. And now here is where I got confused. I understood the article, when I first read it, to actually be about getting the hottest temperatures ever recorded. Well, it turns out that due to the weird energy state, you also have another odd phenomenon occurring. Schneider's new creation, besides having a negative temperature, is also extremely hot because of the high energies of the particles involved. Schneider says, quote, Heat travels from hot to cold, and heat will always flow away from this gas. It's actually hotter than everything we know. Unquote. I don't understand this either. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that statement. It's near zero Kelvin, and yet it's hotter than everything we know. How does this make any sense? Well, Schneider tries to explain it as follows. Quote, The high-energy atoms in the system can't lose energy because doing so would require them to increase their kinetic energy. That is not possible because the system is in a vacuum and there is no outside energy source to interact with. We create a system with a lot of energy, but the particles cannot redistribute their energy, so they have to stay in a high-energy state." If you define heat as molecules being in a high-energy state then that's why the molecules are so hot. They're locally restricted to that high-energy state. If that isn't weird enough, here's another statement from Schneider, which made my head spin even harder. Quote, The molecules in a typical gas spread out and exert a force on the walls of their container. But a negative temperature gas also has a negative pressure, meaning the particles tend to cave in rather than expand. It wants to collapse into a single point, Yes, negative temperature gases want to implode. And no, I don't know how that can be exactly either. Schneider suggests that negative temperatures are important to study because dark matter may have negative temperatures leading to negative pressure effects. He says that experimenting with the quantum phenomenon of negative temperature could reveal the nature of dark energy throughout the cosmos. You know, every time we bring up quantum mechanics and quantum phenomenon in this program, I feel like I need a drink, or an aspirin, or both. Oy, my head. Next story. As a martial artist of many years, and an evolutionary biologist, this next story fascinates me. If you ask most evolutionary biologists what forces caused humans to evolve with their hands in the shape that they are, they would do hand-waving and talk about grasping tools and making tools and the selective need for fine manipulation. However, if you ask Dr. David Carrier of the University of Utah that same question, you will get a very different answer. Carrier published an article this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology that suggests a very different selection process that caused human hands to develop as they did in a very different way from any other ape. Carrier suggests that the human hand may have evolved its distinctive proportions for a far less enlightened reason than simple tool using. It was for use as a weapon, According to Carrier, modern chimps have long palms and fingers with a short thumb, while the human palm and fingers are much shorter and the thumb longer and stronger. Carrier explains that this squat arrangement allows us to clench our hand into a fist when we fold the thumb across the fingertips. However, chimp fingers form an open donut shape when curled, according to Carrier. So Carrier hypothesized that the tightly packed human fist provides internal support, that is, buttressing to the digits to protect them from damage during combat. In addition, he wondered whether curling the fingers into a fist could allow the delivery of a more powerful blow, that is, increase the peak force of an impact than slapping with an open hand. Carrier tested to find out whether hands are more effective when balled into a fist or wielded in a sort of slap. Carrier asked athletes to smack a punching bag with their hands in a range of shapes, from open-handed slaps to closed fists, using various delivery styles, overarm, underarm, sideways, head-on. And Carrier measured the peak force of each impact. He found that the punch did not deliver more force per blow with an open palm. So the hypothesis that the closed fist delivered more force than any other shape found no support from that initial experiment. So he then followed that experiment up and tested whether buttressing the hand by curling the fingers and thumb stiffens the entire structure of the hand. Martial artists were asked to roll their hands into a variety of fist shapes. For example, two of those shapes with the thumb extended sideways, and then push the first joint of the index finger against a force transducer to measure the rigidity of the knuckle joint in the presence and absence of the buttressing thumb. Impressively, the knuckle joint was four times more rigid when supported by the thumb. When Carrier measured the amount of force that the athletes could deliver through the fist surface of the index and middle fingers, he found that the presence of the buttressing thumb doubled the delivery force by transmitting it to the wrist and through the metacarpals, that is the palm bones, and then through the thumb and index fingers. So our short square hands are perfectly proportioned to stiffen our fists for use as weapons and allow humans to deliver powerful punches without incurring much injury. Well, the next story sticks with that theme of evolution, but it is way, way more controversial than what shaped human hands. The quarterly review of biology came out last month with a very interesting story from Dr. William Rice, who is an evolutionary biologist at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Dr. Rice has been tackling a question that has been puzzling biologists now for more than a few years. And the question is this. Evolutionarily, Why are there still humans out there who are homosexual? Let me put this in biological terms before somebody screams and gets upset. Biological selection occurs from generation to generation as organisms reproduce. The interaction between the environment, the physical traits of an organism, and the likelihood of that environment to affect reproduction all interact to produce evolutionary change over time. Humans and apes, for example no longer have tails because they stopped living in trees and simply don't need those tails. And there was likely a reproductive disadvantage to having those tails. Therefore, over time, apes with shorter and shorter tails were more reproductively successful until apes were left with no tails at all, including humans. If you have a trait that is a reproductive dead end, that is, individuals with that trait do not reproduce, then, how is it that that trait is selected for or passed along to new generations? And the answer is, it's not usually. So, we have a paradox. How do we have individuals who have a trait that is essentially a reproductive dead end? Rice suggests a radical reevaluation of how homosexuality may be genetically passed along. He suggests that the molecular underpinning of human sexuality including homosexuality, could lie in the inheritance of epigenetic markers. Now, let me make this clear if you guys don't remember. Epigenetic markers are those that are not included in the coding of the DNA itself.
2: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: These are sort of metagenetic control systems. Rice's paper provides a step-by-step argument for this idea. The theory is not yet backed up by actual epigenetic data, On people with different sexual orientations, but at least right now, it relies on established findings on the frequency of homosexuality and the known mode of inheriting epigenetic traits to make its case. The crux of Rice's theory is that in the womb, sex and sexuality are influenced by levels of testosterone. But this isn't just mediated by whether a fetus had male or female genes that control the level of testosterone production. Epigenetic markers on the genome also control how the fetus, and then later the child and the adult, respond to testosterone levels. Most male fetuses have epigenetic markers that make them more sensitive to testosterone than female fetuses. Usually, the male epigenetic markers are erased from the egg and sperm and reestablished in a fetus. But Rice's team argues that when male epigenetic markers are not erased from the sperm and are inherited by a daughter, or when female epigenetic markers from an egg are inherited by a son, sexuality could be influenced. The change in the fetus's reaction to testosterone is not enough to change their sex, but it could be enough to alter their sexuality. I actually saw an article on Yahoo this week that claimed that Rice's new findings nixed the idea of a quote-unquote gay gene. Geneticists have not believed, by the way, for a long time that a gay gene exists. A trait as complex as sexuality is not likely to be controlled by one single Mendelian gene mutation. Geneticists have realized for a while that lots of complex traits are never controlled in such a way. Height weight, intelligence, skin coloring, all those traits have gradations that are controlled through complexes of interacting genes. It still may be that multiple genes will have to be examined to get the whole story along with the potential epigenetic effects. In short, Rice's work certainly does not close the book on the biology of homosexuality. Even Rice says that discovering epigenetic markers is just the beginning of our understanding of a very complex genetic effect. Okay, on to a less controversial story. Loud noise is bad for you. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, I told you this piece would enlighten you. Loud noise, bad. Okay, I'm kidding. Well, I'm not kidding about the loud noise. Loud noise is bad for you, and it can cause permanent damage industrial workers, even musicians. In most cases, when there are destructive sound waves, those waves focus their energy on the small hairs of the inner ear in the cochlea. Those ear hairs quiver in response to sound and send the sense of those sound waves to the brain for interpretation. As those hairs are destroyed, permanent hearing loss is the result. Well, here's the entire point of this story that I was getting to, there now may be hope for people famous and otherwise with hearing loss and tinnitus. Dr. Albert Edge, an otologist at Harvard University Medical School, was the lead author of a paper in Neuron this month, which reports the first time that a drug has been applied to the inner ear that seems to regenerate those ear hairs. The drug works by activating a DNA transcription factor involved in hair cell development. The finding is the first in the field. While fish and birds can regenerate inner ear hair cells after sonic damage, scientists have never been able to show that that's possible in mammals. Dr. Edge explains why this is a breakthrough. Quote, Cochlear implants have been available and successful for years and have helped a lot of people. But there's a general feeling among clinicians scientists and patients that a biological repair would be preferable to an implant." Unquote. Previously, Edge had shown that inhibiting a protein called Notch from signaling during mammalian development in mice was important for hair cells to form properly. In this new work, he tested whether such inhibition of the Notch pathway could also spur hair cell regeneration in adult mammals. First, he tested different inhibitors to determine their effects on isolated ear tissues. This allowed them to pinpoint one, the alpha secretase LY411575, and that led to increased expression of a number of molecular markers found in the hair cells. Edge says that they were completely surprised by the results. They had few expectations that the treatment would affect an adult mammal. All their work had initially been done with early development and adult tissues are hard to stimulate to grow. Then the scientists tested the inhibitor in mice with hearing damage and reduced hair cell populations caused by exposure to loud noise. As far as I know, they did not use Justin Bieber music, which would have just killed the mice outright. Anyway, they tagged cells in the inner ear to follow what eventually happened to them, and discovered that the drug caused the supporting cells to differentiate into replacement hair cells. Those replacement hair cells partially restored hearing at low frequencies of sound, although not at higher frequencies. The effect lasted for at least three months, which was as long as they tested. As with all studies like this, there could be a potential problem with the treatment. It may not work in people like Pete Townsend, who damaged their hearing decades ago. The drug was employed in mice one day after damaging sound waves were introduced to them. In other words, the damage was fresh. Because the damage was fresh, the notch protein signaling was probably at its highest. Therefore, it's possible that a small window of time exists after an acoustic injury in which the drug must be given to be effective. Old schmucks like me may be out of luck. Edge finished the paper saying that since the hearing improvements they saw were modest, they were now going to look at variations of the approach and whether they could use the same drug to treat other types of hearing loss. The final story of the evening is a new one about academic uh, scientific dishonesty. The story was just published today in the online news section of the journal Biotechniques. Dr. Paul J. Mukowski... The former senior investigator at the Gladstone Institute of Neurological Disease, he resigned last month, today issued a formal apology for having falsified data in three grant applications submitted to the National Institutes of Health. Bukowski said, quote, I would like to express my sincere remorse and apologies to the community. I now fully realize that any shortcuts in drafting grant applications are wrong and not acceptable scientific procedure. I will never commit such mistakes again. Unquote. Um, Yeah, he will probably never do them again because he will probably never get another job again, I suspect. Even making stuff up on an official government application is tantamount to an academic death sentence. He will be lucky, in my opinion, to get a job teaching high school biology in Arkansas the U.S. Federal Office of Research Integrity says that, quote, in three grant applications, Mukowski falsely reported from research experiments when the results did not exist at the time the grant applications were submitted, unquote. Mukowski has been a prominent figure in the field of Huntington's chorea disease research and is the author of several papers that have been cited over a hundred times each. Uh, in a paper published, uh, last year, well, I guess actually two years ago now, in 2011, in the Journal of Cell, Mukowski reported that a new compound, which they called JM6, alleviates neurodegenerative symptoms in mice who have Huntington's chorea and Alzheimer's. Mukowski says, quote, Importantly, my research findings were never called into question, and there will be no retractions based on these findings, unquote. Yeah. And my response to that is, Well, no retractions so far. I would be very surprised if the ORI doesn't start looking at his publications as well. The government does not appreciate it when you take their money and then make things up. As a result of the ORI's findings, Mukowski has agreed to be supervised for the next two years on any federally funded research project in which he's involved. In addition, he will not participate in any advisory roles in public health service. Why do I bother telling you these types of stories? Well, in short, to remind you that scientists are just like people in other fields. Do not trust results just because they were published somewhere. There are good scientists, untrustworthy scientists, and just plain rotten scientists, just like any other endeavor. Some of them cheat, lie, falsify information, mislead, etc., just to be more competitive, to get tenure to get promotions, and to get lauded from their colleagues in some cases. The victims of the actions of these tricksters are often other scientists who act with the utmost integrity, who get passed over for grants because other colleagues and their imaginary work look so much more seductive and sexy to the grant committee. Worse than that, it affects our children and our children's children who will have to live with those wrong or ill-thought-out science papers in the future. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care, don't lie on grant applications, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
1: Jim, sir, as I say, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it's called In the Moment by Jerry Olcean. I'll give you a little heads up with Jerry. Jerry Olcean has published fifteen novels and more than a hundred and fifty short stories. He is the most prolific author in the history of Analog Man- Magazine. Dating all the way back to its inception as astounding in 1930. He won the Nebula Award for his novella Abandoned in Place. He's also an avid amateur astronomer who likes building his own telescopes. He designed a new telescope mount that he calls Trackball and takes it out discovering wherever he can, which isn't very often, he says, since he lives in a cloudy Pacific Northwest. <laughs> That's just fantastic. <laughs> Keen is out in astronomy and the place is cloudy as hell. Jerry, amazing. Thank you, thank you so much for letting we'll us have this story. This story is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Like I say, how pleased am I just to get this quality narrator on the show. Do you know what I mean? This is what makes Starship so bad, just having quality narrators like this. And like I say, Veronica's up there as well. And Amy, man, you just cannot beat Amy's narrations. Just hit the nail on the head. Amy, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present In the Moment by Jerry Orson.
0: The astronomers began to arrive at dusk. First came the ones with computerized telescopes. They needed the last vestige of daylight to assemble their mounts and to find all the plugs and sockets before they could power up and run their alignment programs. Next, just as the pole star popped out of the twilight came the people with equatorial mounts. They set up their tripods, peering through the right ascension axes toward celestial north, then attached long Newtonians or stubby Schmidt-Cassegrain's or the occasional slim refractor to the dovetail brackets on top. Then came the people with Dobsonians and trackballs, large aperture reflectors on simple rotating bases that could be set up in just a few seconds. There were maybe two dozen telescopes, and no more than twice that many astronomers, in a meadow a dozen miles from the city. If they had set up in town, as they sometimes did for public star parties, there would be hundreds of people milling around, looking through each scope in turn at the various wonders in the night sky. But tonight was different. Tonight, the telescope owners wanted to be at the eyepieces of their own scopes— This was a private occasion, in more ways than one, and town was not a place anyone connected with the sky wanted to be on this of all nights. The meadow hummed with quiet conversation, and the soft whir of fans blowing the cool night air over the telescope's primary mirrors. The mirrors had to be at ambient temperature to give crisp images, and tonight, People wanted the best views they could get. The sky sparkled with the brighter stars, and more twinkled into view every minute. Vega stood a little to the west of Straight Up, with Deneb to the east and Altair to the south, the Summer Triangle. It was dropping steadily into the west four minutes earlier every night, but it was still there to provide proof that autumn didn't yet dominate the sky. To the east of Altair shone a brilliant white point at least ten times as bright, trailing a long stripe of white mist that stretched up and to the left. The comet's tail covered half the sky, even though most of its hundred-million-mile length was pointing almost directly away from Earth. The astronomers could see the nucleus move by naked eye, slowly, like the minute-hand of a clock moving eastward to meet the moon, which was still an hour or so below the horizon. Sean was one of the Dobsonian people. Her telescope didn't track the sky by itself. She had to nudge it along by hand, looking sideways into the eyepiece that stuck out near the front of the tube and correcting for Earth's rotation every 30 seconds or so at low power, more often at high. Her practiced hand at that would be a distinct advantage tonight, since the comet wasn't moving at the sidereal rate that most of the more expensive telescopes tracked at, everyone else would be manually correcting a scope that they didn't normally have to correct, while she would be doing what she did every night, just in the opposite direction, and faster. She swept her telescope along the comet's tail, using low power so she could see the entire width of it in the field of view. It looked like a waterfall with knots and gaps scattered at random throughout its length. They became more pronounced nearest the nucleus, where the sun's heat boiled off new material and the solar wind shoved it out behind the comet. There were even a few solid chunks of ice, probably as big as mountains, that made tiny sparkles of brightness in the milky fog. Comet tails didn't always sweep out behind the nucleus— they pointed away from the sun, no matter which way the comet was actually moving. This one was moving sideways, like a pencil point. Like the pencil point of God, some said, writing, "meeny, meeny, Tekel, across the cosmos. Most comets would loop around the sun, their tails sweeping out a giant arc and preceding the nucleus back into the depths of space where they came from. But Comet Davis wouldn't have that opportunity, Even if it missed the moon, as many people thought it would, the moon's gravity would tear it to pieces. That same gravity would also deflect its orbit, flinging those pieces back outward into the solar system without a turn around the sun. In dozens to hundreds of years, those pieces might each return as smaller comets, but nothing like the original. If it struck, which Sean believed it would, that would be another matter— The comet's nucleus was still in one piece, a piece nearly 20 kilometers across, and it would hit hard, even if it was just a glancing blow. The explosion would dig a huge crater in the moon and throw lunar rock everywhere. Most of that would fall back to the moon, creating secondary craters for days to come, but some of it would be blasted free, and some of that would cross paths with Earth. If a big enough chunk made the crossing... Humanity could easily join the dinosaurs. Nobody knew which it would be. A person could find data enough to support any belief, and people who stood to gain in one scenario or another had been quick to supply their own spin on what data there was. And, of course, millions of scientifically illiterate people believed that the comet would strike Earth directly, tonight, or that it was hiding a fleet of alien spaceships poised to attack when it drew close, or who knew what other nonsense. Sean felt guilty for believing that it would strike. She was supposed to have hope. Her father had told her that hope and faith could actually make a difference, and that her lack of either could affect whether God diverted the comet or not. He wouldn't even come out with her tonight to watch. He was going to stay home and pray. She wondered if he thought he could offset her negative effect with his own positive one. She wondered if she thought so, too, deep down. She wondered if her father would be all right in town, if town would exist in the morning, even if the comet missed the moon. He had been happy to let her go out with the astronomy club tonight, if only to get her away from the people who thought that this would be their last night to live. The knot in her stomach tightened, and she looked into the eyepiece again. All over the world, people were drinking, praying, rioting, fornicating, all the things people did when they thought their time was up. Sean had run through a million scenarios of her own, but ultimately, this was what she wanted most, to watch the greatest astronomical event of her life, to actually witness it firsthand through her own telescope. She had hitched a ride with her high school physics teacher, who had promised her dad she would be safe. She wished she could believe that, too. She knew intellectually that she was, that the odds of danger were tiny, that even if a mountain of rock were blasted toward Earth, it could be days before it hit. But when an entire world was freaking out, it was hard to remain calm just because you knew the odds. She heard footsteps in the grass behind her and turned to see who it was, There was enough sky glow behind them that all she could make out was a silhouette. It was someone about her age by the way they walked. Someone male. Someone shy, with his hands in his pockets and his shoulders hunched. Hi, Arthur, she said. Hey, Sean. He stopped beside her, about three feet away, and scuffed his shoe in the grass. Want to look? Sure. She stood aside and he bent down to the eyepiece. She didn't have to explain to him how to move the scope. He didn't have one of his own, but he came to star parties all the time. He watched for a while, then without looking up, said, "'You're beautiful, isn't it?' "'What?' "'It,' he said hastily. "'The comet, it's beautiful, even if it could kill us all.' "'Yeah.' She felt the heat in her cheeks and was glad it was dark. Arthur probably was, too. She said, Do you think it's going to hit? He looked up at her. At that angle, with the light from the comet above him, she could actually see his face pretty well. He looked older than she remembered him. If he tried to buy beer tonight, he might get away with it. He said, I... Yeah, probably. The best estimate of the nucleus diameter puts at least a kilometer of it below the surface. And there are mountains at least a couple kilometers high in its path, too. Shang almost laughed that was so arthur but she knew the measurements too she had helped refine them carefully observing background stars as they blinked out and back when the comet passed in front of them astronomy was one of the few hobbies where an amateur could still collect valuable data trouble was the comet had so much gas and dust around it stars didn't disappear and reappear instantly the way they did when an asteroid passed in front of them. It didn't reflect radar well, either. There was easily a couple of kilometers of error in the measurements. Someone called out, "'There it is!' and she looked to the east. A tiny triangle of yellow poked up above the horizon, visibly growing as she watched. The moon was rising, rushing to meet its attacker. But no, that was the wrong image— The moon moved eastward in its orbit. It was actually fleeing the comet, if you wanted to get technical, just not fast enough, not nearly fast enough. It would only take another two hours for the comet to catch up. Two hours until she knew whether she would live or die. Arthur pushed the front of the telescope down until the tube was parallel to the grass and sat cross-legged beside it. Even so, He had to bend down to reach the eyepiece. It's, um, it's like you, too, he said. She did laugh this time, but her voice had an edge to it that made her decide not to try that again until after whatever was going to happen had happened. I mean it, Arthur said. You're beautiful, and I never had the nerve to tell you before, not like you need me telling you in order to figure it out, but I've wanted to tell you anyway ever since we met, and this might be my last chance, and if it's not, that's even better, because then maybe we'd have some time to actually go out on a date or something if you'd go out with me. He was still looking into the eyepiece. Sean felt a little shiver run all through her. She looked up at the comet, then around at the meadow full of astronomers. "'Looks like we're already out,' she said. "'At that he turned toward her and grinned. "'I guess we are. You want to look?' "'Sure.' "'They traded places, and Sean watched the moon rise. "'It was just a couple days past full, "'the dark crescent rising first, "'glowing softly in combined earthlight and comet glow. "'Compared to that, the bright side was a spotlight,' "'shimmering wildly in the turbulent air close to the horizon. "'She imagined it shivering at the thought "'of what was about to happen to it, "'but its heavily scarred surface belied that. "'The moon was no stranger to comet impacts. "'Several million years had passed since the last one, "'but that was the blink of an eye to the moon. "'Whatever happened tonight would barely affect it. "'She watched for a while, then let Arthur watch some more. "'They didn't talk much.' He had apparently decided to quit while he was ahead, and she had no idea what to say either. Out in the meadow, red flashlights clicked on and off as people checked their watches. They didn't really need to protect their night vision tonight, not with the moon and the comet so bright, but astronomers were creatures of habit. They used red lights. Someone turned on a radio. The strident voice of a talk show host put Sean on edge. "'Apparently someone else closer to the radio felt the same way "'because it clicked off a moment later, and she heard a soft, "'Sorry.' "'Mr. Hughes came around to see how she was doing. "'He looked old tonight, too. Maybe it was the light.' "'The comet drew closer to the moon. "'The moon went from yellow to white as it left the horizon behind. "'The night air grew colder. "'Sean and Arthur drew closer together, sitting side by side and leaning left and right so one could look through the scope, then the other. They weren't quite touching. As the moon rose, they slowly straightened their backs, then had to stretch to reach the eyepiece. "'You're almost as tall as me,' Arthur said. Five eight? Sean replied. "'I'm five-eleven and a half.' "'And a half? I'm very proud of that half,' he admitted. "'In shoes, I'm over six feet.' "'Ah!' She looked at him. Mostly a shadow with a few highlights here and there, his eyes sparkled in the moonlight. A few telescopes away, someone gasped, then said, I saw a flash! In Marium Brium, just south of Plato! Sean and Arthur both went for the eyepiece. Their heads met with a solid thunk. Sorry, Arthur said. Go for it! Sean didn't argue. She had to push the moon into view, then find Imbrium and Plato, but she didn't see anything unusual there. That part of the surface was in full sunlight, so there wasn't much contrast. But it must have been quite a strike to show a flash. Maybe there would be secondary impacts. She watched for 10, 15 seconds, but saw nothing unusual. You look, she said, leaning away. Arthur did and almost instantly said, Oh, yeah, there was another one. Other voices echoed his throughout the meadow. Here, he said, you look again. She did, but saw only the same old moon. She couldn't even identify any new craters. Whatever had hit it, then, must not have been very big. A few ice boulders must have drifted ahead of the nucleus, she said. Arthur leaned back to look around her. Man, it looks close now. Sean looked up, gauging the distance. Then back into the eyepiece. She pushed the front of the scope a degree or so to the northwest, and the nucleus of the comet swept into view. For a moment it looked like a rocket zooming across the field, but even when she stopped pushing the scope, it moved visibly toward the moon. "'Just a couple more minutes,' she said. "'You keep looking,' Arthur said. "'It's your scope.' She couldn't have pried herself away from the eyepiece if she'd wanted to. She kept her left hand on the rim of the tube, pulling steadily now to keep the comet's nucleus in view. The scope was already focused as well as she could get it. There was nothing for her right hand to do except take Arthur's hand and squeeze. Miss, she whispered. Please, miss. Dear God, if there is a God, please make it miss. Her father, if he could see and hear her now, would be white as the face of the moon. His little girl blaspheming and holding a boy's hand at the same time, his world would already be shattered. Impact, if it happened, would be near the crater Copernicus, at the southwestern end of the Apennine Mountains. The people with computerized scopes would all be watching that, waiting for the comet to sweep into view and hoping they had their eyes on the right spot. But Sean kept her eyes on the comet. Wherever it hit, she would be watching. It seemed to be taking forever. She could hardly breathe. She was afraid to breathe anyway. What if she fogged the eyepiece? What if the secondary mirror dewed up anyway? What if the comet hit? What if it didn't? Arthur's hand was warm. What was she going to do about that? It's right there he whispered. They're both in the same field of view, she said. It's getting closer. Closer. It's crossing the dark limb over mare Crisium, sea of tranquility, approaching the... Oh, it's sparkling! I see it, Arthur said, like a Roman candle. No, those other things. What are they called? Sparklers? <laughs> right, he laughed. Approaching the apennines, she said. There was a big flash, so bright she couldn't see anything else. She blinked, but that eye was useless now, full of after-images. She shifted to the other, saw a spray of incandescent rock splashing outward amid more sparkles. Then another flash filled that eye with after-images, too. "'You look,' she said, leaning away from the eyepiece. She blinked and squinted and looked directly at the moon, but all she could see were two big blobs of light that exploded again and again every time she blinked. Was that the big one? she asked. Or did it just shear the tops off a couple of mountains? I don't know. It's still... Wow! 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 That was Copernicus's rim wall going down for sure. Cries of dismay and delight filled the meadow. It just grazed! Someone shouted, and someone else said, "'You call that a graze, you fucking idiot? "'It fucking hit! We're all fucking dead!' "'How bad is it?' Sean asked quietly. "'I don't know,' Arthur said. "'It didn't leave a huge gouge or anything. "'There's this big ball of plasma "'roaring off across the bright limb, "'and there's secondary impacts everywhere, "'but I can still see part of Copernicus, "'so it couldn't have been a direct hit.' "'Sean blinked hard,' then forced her eyes to stay open until the after-images subsided. The comet's nucleus was brighter than the bright face of the moon, brighter than anything she had ever seen in the sky besides the sun. It swept downward past the moon's edge and off into space again, growing visibly whiter and brighter as it did. Through its tail, the moon sparkled like a distant city on the 4th of July, but there were no angry red scars. "'No new seas full of instantly melted lava. "'Do you see any ejecta rising?' she asked. "'No.' "'Let me look.' "'Arthur moved aside, and she leaned in. "'They were still holding hands. "'In the midst of all this, they were still holding hands. "'He was looking toward the moon, past her, "'his face lit up by the spectacle a quarter million miles away. "'And before she could stop herself... She leaned toward him and kissed him. Then she looked into the eyepiece, and after a long, silent minute or so, during which she saw no big chunks of the moon flying away, only the comet nucleus, which was already expanding into vapor, she decided they were going to live. Into the world, ha! Huh? <laughs> she said, and she laughed, and she kissed him again. <laughs>
1: There you go, 't forget Copyright is Jerry. Jerry, thank you so much. And Amy, what a star! Thank you. Well, that is the show wrapped up. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do, you know, pop over to the forums, pop over to the front of the website, donate, keep it going, keep the old girl going. That would be fantastic. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Ooh.
4: Can they survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week
0: for the next exciting installment of... ...Starship Sofa, procedure initiated. Shovel set for lunch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one...